Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Pasco Sabido to the podcast. Pasco is a researcher and campaigner at Corporate Europe Observatory, a Brussels-based non-profit research and campaign group whose aim is to expose any effects of corporate lobbying on EU policymaking. Pasco's research is focused on exposing the power of the oil and gas industry in the European Union and in the United States. So thank you very much, Pasco, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Excellent. So fantastic to have an opportunity to speak to you directly after COP27, a very fresh moment. And I know you've spent some time thinking about this and the research that you're doing and have been doing uh, underpins uh, a lot of this. Can you maybe just to begin with, tell us a little bit about what you do, Pascal? Yeah, sure. So I work for an organization called Corporate Europe Observatory. And uh, in particular, I work on climate and energy. And my role is to try and expose basically the oil and gas lobby, expose their lobbying and how they try and influence policymaking. Uh, so CEO our acronym is based in Brussels, uh, so we work a lot at the EU level, but I also work at the UN level, so look at the climate talks. But right now, I'm actually speaking to you from London, so I'm I'm based from in London myself, um, which is quite quite far removed from the EU these days. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so I usually like to take a little bit of a temperature reading at the beginning to get a sense of what's on your mind, and uh, you've been involved in this research for some time. I'm just wondering, are there a couple of issues? What amongst the, the myriad crises and challenges we're facing right now is on your mind, worries you the most, Pasco? Oh, worries me the most. That's a big question. I mean, I think on the one hand is the, the science. And just the straight up science and the, the facts that we're going to probably pass 1.5 degrees by 2030. And these are the sort of the real hard facts that sometimes bring you back down to earth with a bump. Um, but from my side, I think it's really important that you mentioned that there's, you know, there's a myriad of crises going on at the moment. I'm also involved in um, at the European level trying to bring groups together to, to fight the cost of living crisis. So the cost of living crisis caused by an energy crisis, caused by the sort of Europe's dependence on, on fossil fuels. Um, and now big oil and gas companies making huge amounts of profits as prices go up, as energy bills go up. So this is incredibly worrying because it's not just about the climate. This is about people freezing in their homes, people not having access to energy, not having decent housing. And what we're seeing at the moment is people, you know, people's wages have been stagnating. So we're seeing like this huge coming together of all sorts of crises from the climate side to now a cost of living side. And of course, we have 
biodiversity and we have all the sort of the world around us is collapsing but now it feels like the economy and society are also facing uh some pretty tough challenges at the moment indeed indeed any seeds of optimism what when you look around where do you get uh resourced or where do you see positivity where do you see what inspires you pasco yeah i mean i think i have to say despite it being this really grim coming together crisis it's a beautiful opportunity i mean finally climate change climate, we've always known climate change is not a, a scientific issue about parts per million it's an economic issue and a social issue it's about how our economy is organized who it benefits who it doesn't benefit and likewise the impact has on society and now what we're seeing is the issue of high energy prices caused by fossil fuels which are driving climate change has become a social issue and through the work i've been doing around sort of trying to link up groups working on cost of living so linking up the housing movement with trade unions with those fighting energy poverty with sort of gas and climate campaigners there's a huge opportunity to really to shift things in a much more structural and systematic way because the big cry that you'll often hear from climate justice groups at, at climate talks at cops is we want system change not climate change what's that mean in practice at least what i'm seeing at the european level is moving away from a sort of competition market based system to one based much more on solidarity on realizing people's needs you know energy should be a basic need a basic right to meet that need um and a, a real opportunity to bring together lots of groups have been working separately uh to fight for something that can have real long lasting change not, not just on the climate side but on an economic perspective on a societal perspective social perspective so i'm i do have this winter next winter um things are heating up uh so i i really see a potential for change of course in that potential there's always the possibility that things shift in the wrong direction that sort of that terrain which should be taken up by left-wing actors ends up being taken up by far-right actors who respond to people's social needs but i'm staying positive at the moment that we can get organized and really use this to shift the direction we're going in fantastic uh inspiring perspective we come back to maybe some of those though the points that you mentioned there well let's just get to the heart of the matter and 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 talk about uh cop 27 um it seems there's been a mixed response uh to 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 the cop uh to the outcome uh with with um some uh a variety of responses and uh feeling that the loss and damage uh finance is an important step forward and others uh with a strong view that actually the whole thing uh smells the number of lobbyists the number of fossil fuel uh people there the fact that the that the language with respect to reducing dependence on fossil fuels has been diluted removed um and uh maybe was it always thus as it were i'm just wondering um i mean there 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 are many myriad perspectives from different groups and people have been working i spoke to harjit singh prior to cop 27 and he emphasized the importance of loss and damage and i think many people see that as an important step forward um and yet there is so much more to be defined in the future can you give us a little bit of a, a overview of what your uh, sense of uh, the outcome of cop 27 yeah i mean I, i think it's important to bear in mind that we can hold multiple views at the same time i think what happened on loss and damage the facts that this new finance facility was created for loss and damage which has been a campaign from 
countries facing the worst impacts of climate change from groups across the world in the global south in particular um, have been calling for this i think it's a huge victory and when victories happen we need to celebrate them <laughs> otherwise you know what that that's the 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 fuel that keeps us going so i think we need to be really proud of the fact that we had countries uh, and governments representing the most vulnerable people across the world fighting and sticking together to demand and to win uh, a fund for loss and damage so to make sure that what's happening in what happened in pakistan uh is actually compensated for and you know this this climate change is is reaping havoc across the world today already there's not a future problem so there needs to be in place uh funds to make sure it's dealt with today and that can be uh you know the money will be there for these countries sorry to just intervene i mean the details aren't there what the funding is where the funding is what the terms of the funding are uh, I know that uh, these kind of treaties move forward in small steps, as it were. I mean, the GCF has not received, you know, has received a fraction of the funding that it was meant to receive. Um, you know, it's easy to say, you know, OK, we we will support this. And then eventually, you know, the terms in which you're going to support this are just unsupportable and therefore nothing really has been achieved and you know it wouldn't be the first time in in the history of cops that promises have been made and uh in yeah. fact you know the opposite is true what what makes you feel that this really is meaningful what what is it about it that was challenging and you know makes you makes you feel so positive i mean perhaps to put it in context i completely agree the devil is always in the detail and the number of times i've been let down and disappointed by unfulfilled promises from this process uh, i haven't got enough fingers or toes to count um but it's worth putting this in context so that the us and the eu would not support this the U, you know the us would just simply not do so um so to have a shift because the us didn't want to be held uh accountable for its corporations and the US government didn't want it to be held accountable for damage happening today because it could lead to all sorts of liabilities. So it was never going to sign up to this. So the fact they've managed to get an agreement globally on this and that this has been, you know, this has been a red line for many countries shows that actually the agenda is not always just being set by rich countries who have done the most to cause climate change. Those who are on the receiving end who have done the least to cause it and are suffering the most also have a voice. And I think it was really important uh to make sure that agenda was 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 clear and upfront uh and supported by what's called the G the group of 77 countries plus China which is I think over 120 uh developing countries who negotiate together you know that they sort of stuck together and, and won this and that actually for them this was as important if not more so than emissions cuts because they're facing a crisis today and there's no way we can get to a world where we're cutting emissions and asking other countries to cut emissions if we're not providing the finance and we're not saying we recognize what you're going through today and actually that finance will be provided. On what terms is this an issue? On what terms will that finance be provided? We see in general a, you know, a, a growing momentum around uh, Daniela Gabor, Adam Tooze and others have talked about in terms of, you know, the de-risking uh, investment process um, where, you know, countries in the global south are expected somehow to de-risk the investments uh, for uh, private capital. In general, the public-private partnerships have not worked well. They've worked well for the, the, the corporate uh, actors in general. Um, and the, you know, the, the balance power, the whip hand 
obviously lies in the hands of the the countries who are who have the money are there questions about how that money is provided on what terms are we looking at the possibility of imf type questions you know they're giving the money other uh you know commitments are going to be expected yeah i mean i think it's a really important uh worrying point um up to now i mean i'd say for the last 10 or so years we've seen this huge move towards public money being used to yeah like you say de-risk private money to to crowd in private money and this is public money being used to make more money for the private sector um and what it's about and this is what's quite scary is it's turned into a profit making opportunity often yeah. for for corporations in the global north so for loss and damage this is this is not profitable that's what's so clear about this so that money has to be in grant form you know the, if it ends up as loans all you're going to do is add to further indebtedness of many countries who are already suffering hugely from indebtedness uh from the 90s from the 80s yeah and is that clear has that been agreed no no like uh, i mean let's be very transparent i'm not uh i'm definitely not a sort of climate finance expert and haven't been following loss and damage that closely yeah. um and what i know is they they have a form uh they have a sort of a shell you could say uh, a fund and how it gets filled but when we look at you know the global the green climate fund the sort of global commitment to 100 billion per year by 2020 that was supposed to be public money it's not i mean a huge swathes of it i think the majority is in the form of loans um so so what is this this is you know perpetuating the same system of okay we're going to the countries in the global north are going to are going to provide these loans give you money um but it's going to be on their terms and it's not it's not going to be able to deal with climate change um you know i was yeah my my granddad's from belize i was in belize uh, last year and they were the chair of uh, the association of small island states and you know covid i was there when covid hit their budget got exploded you know all of these countries it's not just climate change they're going through covid they're going through various recessions i don't know if you've seen what's been going on in lebanon recently uh, over the last few years the economy has tanked i mean you've you've had uh, one of the worst recessions they've they've seen since the civil war things are not looking good um across the board so to say we're now going to load on even more debt to many indebted countries is is never going to solve this so now i am i'm really I'm really wary I'm actually very worried because we also at CEO so my organization uh a colleague of mine works on finance and he was looking at so what were the big what was private finance because actually what we see is going going towards private finance what does yes. that mean that means the big banks that yeah. means the uh, asset managers the insurance firms i mean it, that entire world of sort of global finance has really jumped on this sort of climate bandwagon and and we've seen you know last year in the uk uh the british government was really big on how do we mobilize the private finance sector i mean it's a bit of a it was it was a way to bring the city of london into a profit making opportunity but one of the big things that came out of it was something called the glasgow uh glasgow finance agreement on net zero no glasgow finance alliance on net zero sorry gfans it's a really horrible acronym but basically gfans is made up of the likes of BlackRock, uh Standard Chartered, you've got sort of like AXA, um you know, you've got a lot of the big banks and finance industries, finance firms, and they're all they're all supposed to be jumping in here and find and providing this sort of finance in loans in other ways and and stimulating investment. But at the same time all of these firms a they're all funding the fossil fuel industry, you know. They're even in many of these countries they're funding the fossil fuel industry their main goal is is a return on their investment um they're not going to be the ones who are going to be providing 
grants to make sure that when a disaster hits you're able to clean up um they're not they're going to be the ones parasitically going into pakistan looking at how can we make some money from a country that's already underwater um no i'm i'm i find it really worrying that the the shift of the un talks I'd, it's probably been longer than 10 years but i've been i guess watching this since about 2011 has been a move towards the likes of Deutsche Bank and others and some of these big financial institutions of how can they come in. We've seen with, with COVID, we're seeing with the energy crisis now, that when a push comes to shove, countries and uh, multilateral organisations have their own interests first and foremost. Definitely, because of course we've got a history of the IMF uh, imposing conditionality um, not just in the global south, we saw it during the Eurozone crisis in Europe, imposing conditionality on Greece, on Portugal. You know, you're going to privatize this, you're going to privatize that, be it a port, an airport, uh, your gas grid. Um, but there's an interesting thing with the IMF is there's a what's called uh, innovative sources of climate finance. And so the IMF has something called special drawing rights. It can create money. So, so there are there are yeah potential pots of money which could be in grant form um and each country has a sort of right to a certain amount and if these countries cashed in their special drawing rights if imf created this this could go towards loss and damage that's very interesting now at the heart of your work is this question of the influence of the fossil fuel industry and i i really like to get a sense of how you see that in what ways concretely does the fossil fuel industry influence governments uh help stop the momentum for uh, reducing carbon emissions for reducing fossil fuels and so forth yeah i mean i think it's it's a really important point that because the fossil fuel industry at cop 27 had more than 600 lobbyists yeah. uh walking around sharm el sheikh you know that's that's more than 100 up on last year in glasgow and it's it's incredibly worrying to see what they were doing there. Um, a lot of the activities whilst there, it's around organizing events uh, around their favorite sort of full solutions, such as carbon capture and storage, or don't worry, we're going to continue with gas, but we'll plant trees somewhere else. Um, something called nature-based solutions. You know, a lot of these things that the sort of the the oil and gas industry has worked out. How do we say we're pro-climate, but at the same time continue with business as usual? Um, we'll do through we'll do so through techno fixes. They've been pushing a lot of these techno fixes at COP27. And how do they operate? How do they operate? You hear a lot of talk about lobbyists, subsidies, these kinds of things. So how, how does that do you have a sense what that actually looks like? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that um, quite a few of these lobbyists are on national delegations, so on country badges, which means like, so last year, Canada brought the tar sands industry into the climate talks on its own country delegation, so on its own badge. And what that badge, if you're with a country, it means you can get into the negotiations themselves. So a lot of civil society is is not allowed into these negotiations, but they'll be able to get in. So you can get the tar sands industry literally inside. Um, what we've seen in the past is, is the Canadian delegation will invite these you know, these lobbyists um, to their meetings uh, and make sure they're sort of aligning positions and conferring. Um, and I mean, the way it played out this year, just like last year, there were calls. So in last year, there was a, a call to phase down coal. Um, and it was quite, quite like notable that it wasn't phased down oil and gas and coal or all fossil fuels. It was coal um, because many countries, you know, who uses coal? 
basically South and East and Southeast Asia. Um, what uh, what does the US and, and Europe and Japan use? Or US and Europe definitely use oil and gas. So there's a real absence of oil and gas in this year as well. You know, it was hosted by Egypt. Egypt itself, one of their main goals was to rehabilitate gas, to make sure that people saw uh, gas as like a transition fuel. Now, this is something we've been fighting against for many years. They got COP. Uh, they brought in loads of fossil fuel lobbyists and gas lobbyists. They held summits on the side, decarbonization days, and they managed to sort of ensure that gas was seen as a transition fuel. In the final text, India was pushing for, for oil and gas to be included, to be phased out. Um, it didn't get through. You know, it didn't get through. The, you had the UAE, who was present, the United Arab Emirates, uh, who is going to be next year's COP host and also a big oil and gas producer. Um, the UAE also brought in 70 fossil fuel lobbyists to the talks. Uh, so you can see sort of what the goal was of uh, the host country, Egypt, of next year's host, the UAE, but also of sort of uh, the, the likes of the US, who, whose oil and gas industry is now one of the biggest in the world. And they were adamant not to include oil and gas or all fossil fuels in the final text. What, what influence do they really have? How, I mean, how at the end of the day, they may say they may have, you know, these events and so forth. How does that translate into, you know, the power politics decisions at the end of the day yeah so i think there's two ways one is in the preparation because i mean let's be completely honest by the time that governments get to the cop a lot of their positions are already written you know they know what they're going to say but i work at eu level and when i see what happens in brussels you know since uh so this current the president of the european commission is called ursula von der leyen her and her top team uh since she's been in power for the last two and a bit years they've had more than 500 meetings with the fossil fuel industry and what we've seen you know we we saw the invasion of ukraine by russia uh the eu decided we need to get off russian gas who did it turn to it turned to the ceos of shell bp total and any so four of Europe's biggest oil and gas companies and ask them, what do you think about our plans of getting off Russian gas? Uh, and of course, what did they say? They said, well, you know, we've got some new supplies of gas over here and over here. Um, make sure you don't sort of fiddle with market mechanisms, things that are earning us lots of money. You know, and what they agreed to do was to set up an industry only uh, advisory group to advise the commission going forward on where it could source new gas from even if that's a huge conflict of interest. I mean, the gas industry is telling, telling the EU, oh yeah, go and, go and source gas over there when they've most likely got a financial interest in that specific area. Um, where to get new gas from, what new gas infrastructure like pipelines and LNG terminals need to be built and what measures should or shouldn't be introduced in the EU. So there's, there's a sort of, unfortunately, a symbiotic relationship between decision-making and decision-makers and the fossil fuel industry. And this happens in our national capitals. So before any negotiators get to Sharm el-Sheikh or next year to uh, to Doha, they're already sort of in line with the fossil fuel industry and have made sure that, that these sort of policies will not go against what are seen as national interests. And that's what's really important. The fossil fuel industry has managed to align its own interests with national interests. Um, but at the COP itself, it's really important. There's all sorts of processes that happen. It's not just the COP. The negotiations sort of continue all year long, or at least there's a process all year long. Uh, and there's negotiations happening in Bonn as well in June, so in Germany, sort of the more technical side. But we heard a few years ago, Shell's chief climate advisor, a guy called David Hone, 
he was he was at a side event at one of the cops i think it was cop 25 and he came out and said oh yeah we we uh we drafted part of the paris agreement so this sort of landmark climate agreement passed in cop 21 you know he said yeah we, we we take credit for that and what you realize is you know through their their submissions through their talking to governments they've even drafted sort of parts of the text they get this through through friendly decision makers, friendly negotiators, um, and through the UNFCCC, and they get this into sort of final text. So they do have a sort of concrete influence on what gets discussed, what goes in the text. Um, but importantly, they make sure that when governments are there, they've already got the back of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that, and there has been a lot of attention, um, I guess, with with various uh, groups as as. The, the the number of lobbyists which Global Witness has, has, has pointed out and so forth. Uh, Naomi Klein is talking about boycotting uh, next year's COP. Uh, even Antonio Guterres is saying, you know, we need to reorganize, do this in a different way. This is not uh, working. Um, do you think anything is going to come out of that? And, and what is your sense? Do you have a sense of some ways in which things could improve? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I... I... I don't think I'd be here if I didn't. Otherwise, I'd just be smashing my head against the wall, uh, which, as fun as it is, is uh, leads to, yeah, it's quite painful in the end. But it's worth, so the, the, exactly, the, the research that was produced, it was Global Witness, Corporate Europe Observatory, and Corporate Accountability into how many fossil fuel lobbyists were at the COP. That was really important just to show the, the degree of the problem. But also, it was part of a, a campaign called Kick Big Polluters Out. Um, because ultimately... Okay, we can decry the presence of the fossil fuel industry, but what are we going to do about it? Uh, and there's there's a global campaign with you know more than 450 organisations uh, signed up just before COP27 to call to kick big polluters out. And what in concretely that means, because beyond the slogans, it means having a conflict of interest policy at the UNFCCC and around the climate talks. Because there's a there's really important precedent, in fact. It was the UN Tobacco Treaty and the tobacco talks that were going on. They realised they couldn't reach the ambition they wanted with the tobacco lobby present. So what they introduced instead was something called Article 5.3 in this tobacco treaty. And that article recognised the irreconcilable and fundamental conflict between the interest of the tobacco industry and the interest of public health. And as a result, they needed to introduce a firewall to protect public health and public health policymaking from the tobacco industry and tobacco lobbyists. And this sort of firewall is a way to say, look, your influence is so damaging that we can't we can't reflect the public interest and we can't tackle, be it smoking in that case or climate in this case, is a really important step to make. So we've been calling for a conflict of interest policy at the UNFCCC. And in fact, countries representing 70% of the world's population were also uh, calling for you know, a need to address conflicts of interest. But so far, and this is where, of course, realpolitik comes in and geopolitics, um, the US and the EU have consisted, along with Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and other big fossil fuel nations have consistently blocked this measure and blocked sort of discussions from going forward. But now the UN itself has set up an observer sort of review process to, to look at how do countries engage, how do uh, what are called non-party stakeholders, so NGOs and other sort of non-country and non-government groups engage with the UNFCCC, because it's really important. Um, because ultimately, if we're going to have a space that tackles climate change, 
uh, and that tries to get us off fossil fuels, which is what, you know, the 1.5 degree report from the UN, from the IPCC said, that's what the Paris Agreement says, you know, we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. And therefore, having those companies whose main source of profit is digging up and burning those fossil fuels, having those companies in the room holding back progress means we're never going to get there. So we need to ensure that we protect public policymaking and public interest from these fossil fuel interests. Um, and so this, we're really hoping COP27 is finished, but there's still there's really loud calls for it. And there's still a lot of uh, energy behind it, including from, you know, at the EU level, you had uh, members of the European Parliament from all what five main parties, all calling for a conflict of interest policy. You had the entire parliament, in fact, passing a resolution before the COP started, calling on the EU to support a conflict of interest policy. So this is moving forward. And I'm hoping that in the June sort of inter, what are called intercessional negotiations, this, this will be on the agenda and we'll be able to try and move it forward. Because, you know, with them in the room, we're not going to get there. There's yeah. a great phrase yeah. uh, that those trying to burn down the table should not have a seat at it. Very interesting and, and hopeful. But isn't there a problem here? In order to cut fossil fuels and reduce dependence on fossil fuels, we need sufficient alternative energy supplies, which we don't seem to have currently. And notwithstanding the rhetoric, the level of investment in renewables by fossil fuel uh, companies is tiny. And of course, the longer this goes on, the more we reliant, uh, we remain on fossil fuels, the more power indeed the fossil fuel companies have. So we somehow have to think about supply and demand. Yeah, I think this has been the, the blackmail played by the fossil industry for a long time. And whenever you talk to fossil fuel lobbyists, they say, well, you know what? The world needs our energy. You know, we're going to carry on digging and drilling up yeah. uh, oil and gas because the world needs it. And there's an element of truth. Yeah. Which they have created that situation as well. And when you hear about, you know, you see uh, and, and people talking about and already acting on uh, nationalizing energy, nationalizing the oil companies and so forth, that that would that's one way forward. Um, but yeah, this has been going on for some time. Is that changing? Uh, is the black metal changing? Not so much. Uh, is the investment in renewables changing? Not so much either. The balance of power is not changing. To the degree that there aren't other sources of energy, they know, presumably, that they, they have a very powerful position. I mean, uh, so I think it's more complex than that. They do have a very powerful position, but there is a choice of what our energy system looks like. Uh, and what they've been lobbying for over a certain time frame, though, over a certain time frame, presumably. Yeah, yeah, but even no, no, no. Let's let's. Okay, it depends who we listen to. I mean, this is what's really important. So when the you know Ukraine, I say to be so Eurocentric, but when the Ukraine crisis happened and the EU decided, okay, we're going to get off Russian gas, who did they talk to? Did they talk to groups who uh, deal with energy poverty and who can tell you how to insulate houses to massively reduce demand? You know, did they talk to the renewables groups? Did they talk to uh, you've got a lot of NGOs and think tanks in Brussels who have been showing you could get off Russian gas by 2025 with no new sources coming in, with no new infrastructure needed through ramping up renewables, through ramping up energy efficiency, uh, through having different ways of sort of structuring our energy system. But they didn't do that. Instead, we're now locking ourselves into long-term contracts with the US for fracked gas uh, to bring to Europe at astronomically high prices, um, rather than reducing dependence on gas. And so why is this? Again, it comes down to who are our decision makers listening to and talking to? But what's, I, I am more optimistic. I mean, I, I still feel they have the year of government um, and they are seen as, well, as you said, this underpins the energy security of all these countries. The, the whole threat of, wow, but what if the lights go out? That's constantly levied. 
constantly, you know, constantly leveled against uh, against any government who wants to move away. But it's rubbish. I mean, a lot of it is rubbish. There's other ways to reduce energy consumption. We're seeing it now. A lot of countries are being forced to do it in really horrible ways, in fact, what's going on like in Germany. And there, there's bigger questions of, okay, all this energy we're using, who uses it? You know, it's not fairly distributed across everyone. You see the the carbon footprint of the, the billionaires is three million times the average carbon footprint. Three million times. So the amount of energy they use is astronomical compared to your average Joe uh, who's who's there trying to save energy at the moment because their bills are high. So there's a huge difference in terms of who gets to use energy and how do we cut their energy and make sure that when we are reducing consumption, we're reducing uh, energy use. It's not those who currently don't have enough energy who are suffering. And this is really important because in the economy as well, what the fossil fuel industry has done is it said, okay. It is, in fact, realizing that we're going to move away like from oil and gas and we are going to reduce consumption. So it's new frontier. It's plastics, virgin plastics. You know, when the, the sea is full of plastic pollution, Coca-Cola is the world's biggest plastic polluter sponsor of COP27. And that's one of the main sources now of oil and gas, of new oil and gas is from fracked gas, etc., is going into producing virgin plastics. Surely that is an industry that we should be transitioning out of as soon as possible. We should not be putting fossil fuels into making more virgin plastics. Um, so it's, I think it's a bigger question around what do we want our economy to look like and who do we want it to benefit and who do we not want it to benefit? The point of public ownership is a really important one because at the end of the day, these fossil fuel companies, the likes of Shell and BP, are profit-making entities that they have a responsibility to maximize a shareholder value, which means maximizing their profits, which is why they're staying invested in oil and gas. So if we want to really move away from oil and gas and coal, and we want we need to have like a rapid but managed phase out, then the only way we can do that is by taking these companies into public ownership and then publicly saying we're going to leave those fossil fuels in the ground. What we've seen so far, the fact that climate change has got to the point it's got to shows that we've had the biggest market failure ever. So leaving this problem to the market is never going to work. So we need to take these companies back into public ownership uh, in order to leave fossil fuels in the ground. But I think for me, it goes beyond this. When I look at the huge profiteering that's taken place whilst people are struggling with their bills, that says to me that our energy system is, is inherently broken. The idea that sort of competition was going to lead to low bills, it hasn't. You know, it's led to cartels. It's led to sort of price fixing and price gouging where so these companies are adding even higher prices because, well, why not? Let's use the cover of inflation to increase our prices further and no one will know. So actually what we need is we need a sort of an energy system in the public interest uh, and it needs to be publicly owned. And by publicly owned, let's, ne let's not go back to the 70s of the days of sort of what we saw as nationalization uh, or even today in, in many places in Europe, we have nationally owned companies, but they run as private companies. They run as competitive entities uh, and they're not in the interest of bill payers or the environment. So we need a publicly owned and controlled energy system if we really want to make this transition. And it's the same with renewable energy. If we want the levels of renewable energy that we need to see, we need to open this up. We need huge public investment. We need huge numbers of community uh, owned uh, renewable energy. And we need the state to be playing a really strong role. Leaving this to the market, which is all it's interested in a profit margins, is never going to deliver at the speed we need, at the scale we need, uh, and with the interest of people and the planet at the centre either. It's very interesting you say that. I, I wanted to also just ask you a little bit about the EU, um, which is something that you, you, you look at quite closely. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what goes on? It seems uh, from some of the research I've seen that the lobbyists are uh, very well established, have a very strong presence and uh, presumably are very influential in general and in particular when it comes to energy. Is that uh, changing? And can you just tell us a little bit about what, what goes on there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the energy lobby is one of the most powerful. Um, big oil and gas have been the biggest spenders uh, for for years now. I have to say, this year is the first year we've actually seen big tech overtake it in terms of spending. But it's still, you know, when you see the top ten spenders, you've got the likes of Exxon and Shell in there. Um, they are really powerful. They have armies of lobbyists, and they they're involved in all the processes in Brussels. And it's worth saying. You know, you've got 500 million or 400 post Brexit, 450 million people uh, in the EU, and you've got a staff uh, in Brussels uh, the same size as the staff that deals with the city of Paris. So you know, you've got a huge mismatch between the amount of resources uh, and expertise versus the number of people and number of topics you're supposed to be covering. So they've always relied on the private sector. They've always relied on lobbyists and industry to provide this expertise. And it's led to this sort of, I guess, ideological alignment that has meant um, that what is seen as the, in the interest of industry is in the interest of Europe. And this comes from the from the 90s. You know, we also saw we had uh, in the 80s, we had stagflation in Europe. So high levels of constant high levels of inflation. And the whole idea of having a single market, having the euro uh, expanding the EU to the east was the brainchild of one of the biggest you know industrial lobbies called the European Roundtable of uh, Industry you know and that that group today is still the group that the European Commission turns to when covid breaks out you know yeah, von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, had uh, a special economic council, we found out, um, was regularly meeting with them. And when we looked into it, it's basically just it was members of the European Roundtable of Industry. Uh, when the Ukraine war happened, who did she turn to? She turned to the European Roundtable of Industry, the ERT, whose members include Shell, Total, NE, uh, BP, etc. So they've kept their, their access. Uh, and if anything, they're using times of crisis to increase their access. And that's what's really scary. So since the outbreak of war, uh, and since what, in February, the, the, the fossil industries have more than 100 meetings with the European Commission's sort of top-level staff. So that's, that's basically one every other day, the equivalent of. So I think that level of, uh, of, of proximity has, has remained. You see it now in uh, you know, what direction the EU is going in in terms of energy with building uh, more pipelines, more gas terminals, bringing more imports in. Um, you know, it's, 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 a very, it's a very close relationship. Do I see it changing? I think this is really important because something that I've not spoken about that is really, I think it's really important to flag is that outside of the boardrooms, outside of these big glass buildings in Brussels, people are really pissed off with the oil and gas industry. I mean, not just because profits have been soaring whilst people can't afford their bills, but just people are becoming more aware of the role they're playing in causing climate change and stopping us dealing with it. So there's a lot of anger in the streets, but that hasn't yet translated into political power. So th this is this is a bit the nut we're trying to crack. And at the European level, we've got a campaign called Fossil Free Politics, where we're trying to take the example of what happened to the tobacco industry being kicked out of uh, you know public health policymaking and apply it at the European level to kick out the fossil fuel industry and cut them out of politics so this is something we're trying to like play a part in this this wider toxification of the fossil fuel industry because we need to make it so that 
our decision makers, our politicians will not dare to talk to the fossil fuel industry, will not dare to have private meetings, will not dare when there's a crisis to turn to them as their first port of call. So that's that's what's currently happening. But you see, there's, we've got a long way to go. Um, but I'm, I'm really buoyed by... The, the anger there is against them. Um, and that has to be translated into organization and into political power. At the moment, it hasn't yet because it's so ingrained. You know, that relationship between these energy companies and our governments is so deeply ingrained because of the importance of energy in keeping the economy going, you know, in providing electricity and make sure our hospitals run. You know, energy is the lifeblood of our economies and our societies. So they've got a very important position. But that is being eroded by renewables and a diversification of the economy. Um, And it is being eroded by the fact that people are calling for us to move away from fossil fuels. So I think there's, yeah, there there is, I see these glimmers. um, And I think sort of how do we grow this campaign to to make sure we can toxify them and keep them away from our politicians um, is part of it. You know, at the moment, there's a great campaign to ban fossil fuel advertising or fossil fuel sponsorship. You know, this is part of it as well. How do we take away that social license so they're no longer seen as legitimate partners? And that's going to really damage their political influence because it will damage and completely undermine their political access. Um, so that's 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 where the change is happening. Um, and, you know, change isn't always gradual. Sometimes you have, you know, you have these tipping points. You reach a point where suddenly things shift and you're wondering how did it take this long? And then it goes. So it could be like that. Uh, I think there might be some tipping points ahead of us caused by be it energy crises or, or next winter, to be honest, with with gas prices the way they are. There's growing anger, uh, not just from climate groups, but from you know, trade unions, from energy poverty groups, housing groups. Um, so I think there is there is a potential to really flip this. That's a very inspiring, inspiring vision. What's next for you, Pasco? Are you working on any particular projects? Yeah, so at the moment, um, two things. One is around exposing the role of the fossil fuel industry in causing and perpetuating the cost of living crisis. Um, what we we brought out a report recently, which showed that when the EU, and it still is, the EU is trying to work out what policies can introduce to, to tackle the cost of living crisis. What about a windfall tax uh, on oil and gas producers? What about... Um, a price cap on gas and what we're seeing these measures that are coming out are so weak you know they've been they've basically been blocked by the fossil fuel industry not just the european level but national level as well um so we're trying to expose the role that the fossil fuel industry has been playing in yeah making sure people still can't pay their bills whilst the fossil fuel industry profits so i want to keep that going i think it's a really important piece of work um and then another piece of work that we're doing it's it was all over cop 27 it was hydrogen that the fact that now the fossil fuel industry's new silver bullet of how they're going to stay in business is is hydrogen and you hear it all over the world this is the new global fad is that we're going to switch shift our economy from fossil fuels to hydrogen but what they're not telling you today 97 percent of hydrogen comes from fossil fuels that's the main source of it one of the main users of hydrogen is the fossil fuel industry so they're telling you it's all going to be from renewable electricity etc um but a it's not we haven't got enough renewable electricity um and so what's going to happen instead is all this demand from hydrogen all this hydrogen hype built up by the fossil fuel industry and others uh means that ultimately when there's not enough renewable electricity to produce hydrogen 
Well, then we go back to fossil fuels or we just continue with the fossil fuels for hydrogen. So this is a way for the fossil fuel industry to stay in business. And unfortunately, I mean, there's there's hydrogen fever across the world, but the EU is trying to lead this one. Um, and it's using it's it's using its sort of, I guess, economic power and its development money and its sort of geopolitical power to push countries in the global south to produce green hydrogen, so renewable hydrogen hydrogen to import to europe um and what we've seen we produced a report last year um i know it's still this year sorry and my head is already in 2023 we produced a report earlier this year um and had it translated to french and arabic for cop 27 which was around the neo-colonial resource grab from the european union uh in morocco uh egypt and algeria of how it's pushing these countries to produce green hydrogen in order for european consumers to then uh import um and actually these countries their, their economies and their energy systems are based on oil, oil, gas, and coal. They need to be transitioning themselves. They, they don't need to be using what little renewable resources they have to be producing a very expensive commodity to send to Europe. Um, so we're going to continue this work uh, and show you sort of how the hydrogen economy is, is not in the interests of either the climate or people, be it in Europe or in the global south. Wow, uh, a very important work you're doing there. And um, yeah, I wish you the very best success with it, Pascal. And thank you so much for coming on today and uh, sharing your perspective and all the great work you've been doing. Cheers. Thanks a lot for having me, Fergal. Really appreciate it. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non proliferation treaty a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.